So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 8 through 10 this week. So just those three verses in chapter 2. And, and as we come to this, this short section, this, this short paragraph, verses 8 through 10, we come to what some people call the heart of Paul's gospel. So just in these three verses, um, one, one commentator calls this the heart of Paul's gospel. This short paragraph, which is probably known to many of you, it's a paragraph that calls on us to stop, to, to slow down, and actually recognize the basic equation that forms the foundation of all true Christianity. It's the basic equation that forms the foundation of the gospel message, the, the message of salvation. And so if you're here, it is of utmost importance that you know the equation that is laid out in verses 8 through 10. Because, let's be honest, some of you know it, some of you don't know it, and some of you probably think you know it, but don't actually know it. And so all of us would do well to heed the equation that's laid out here in these verses. And the most basic way for me to convey to you this equation is simply to say that Christian salvation is of God and not of you. Right? The message of, of Christianity, the message of salvation is that it is of God and not of anyone else. Christianity proclaims a message which says, most basically, God saves sinners. Sinners don't save sinners. You can't save yourself. Christianity teaches we can't pick ourselves up and put ourselves on the right path. We can't overload the scales of justice in our favor by doing any amount of good works. We can't save ourselves. We must be saved by someone other than ourselves. This message is clear throughout the Scriptures. Throughout the story of the Bible, God is the one who saves and delivers and rescues. It's important for us to, to know this equation, to know this message, because it's often distorted today in the world, but also in the church, especially in the West. Right? As Western civilization, the basic gospel truth is often mingled with, with hints or dashes or sprinklings of, of this idea of human autonomy or an overestimation of human ability. And so when, when humanity as a whole is seen as better somehow than dead in sins and trespasses, like we saw last week, when humanity is seen as, as not slaves who are following the prince of the power of the air, when humanity is seen as not following the course of the world or carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, when humanity is seen as anything other than naturally born children of wrath, objects of God's wrath, then the basic gospel foundation, this gospel equation, is bad from the start. And so humanity, as Paul clearly worked out in chapter 2, apart from Christ. All humanity is doomed and on a road to destruction. And so we have to rightly understand our condition, because if my condition is not to the degree that I need God and only God to rescue me, then my conception of salvation, my understanding of salvation, will necessarily miss the mark and be less than what Paul argues in this equation, than by grace through faith. And so I just want us to know, be on the same page at the end of this sermon this morning, in agreement that God saves sinners, that, that no one else, I can't save myself. Sinners don't save sinners. God saves sinners. And this is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. As Billy Graham once said, the difference between Christianity and all other religions can be summarized in two words. Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and lives and dies because man cannot be saved 
Man cannot be reconciled to God apart from Jesus Christ, apart from divine rescue. Man cannot get to God, so God, because of his mercy, descends and comes to man. And this coming, this incarnation, this birth and life and death of Jesus is necessary and foundational to Christianity. We need someone to save us. And so if you're, not here and you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you haven't grown up in the church, if you don't know much about the message of Christianity, let me make this perfectly clear to you at the outset. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity does not promote a message that if you're good enough, you can be saved. That is not Christianity. That is moralism, and that will fail you every time. So we, the gospel isn't you can save yourself if you're good enough. Christianity doesn't say if you try really hard, God's going to meet you halfway. Christianity doesn't say if, if you just try your best and live a good life, then, then God will take care of you. That is not Christianity. It's amazing how many Christians I talk to that say, yep, you just got to do your best. That will send you straight to hell. You cannot be good enough. But the good news is, Jesus is good enough. And he came for us. I cannot save myself. You cannot save yourself. That's what Christianity says. It says that Jesus came to save sinners because sinners can't save themselves. Right? Most basically, if I could save myself, I don't need Jesus incarnate, crucified, buried, and resurrected. But the truth is we can't save ourselves, and we do need Jesus, which is why God in his mercy has acted and has sent Jesus. And so when we receive by faith the grace that's offered to us in this gospel message, in this good news, we confess thereby that we have need of Jesus. And so when I put my faith in Christ, I'm saying I need him because I have nothing but perdition in myself as one commentator put it. And this is Paul's point here in chapter 2. And so last week we saw God's rich mercy, God's great mercy that made us alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses. And here, in verses 8, 9, and 10, the end of this section, Paul pauses and makes perfectly clear the specifics, the basics of Christian salvation. And so there's three sentences that are going to make our outline this morning. So the first sentence is, salvation is by grace through faith. The second sentence, the second point is going to be salvation is not of human works. And then the third sentence, or the third point, is, this, is that salvation leads to good works or human works. It leads to works. Not a result of them, but leads to them. Let's read. If, you, if you're in Ephesians chapter 2, you can follow along. I'm just going to read verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. So follow along as I read. So Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray this morning as we, as we begin. Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that we may see wondrous things from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would satisfy us with your unfailing, steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And so I pray as we focus on these 
verses of Ephesians chapter 2, that, that we would rejoice in your great salvation, Lord, and that we would be, as a result of this time, that we would be careful to devote ourselves to good works that you have prepared for us to walk in. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, three sentences, basic outline. Salvation is by grace, first point. Salvation is by grace through faith. There in verse 8 and 9. So so look there at verse 8. Follow along. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And so all before verse 8 of chapter 2, the heart of Paul's message to his readers is that they were dead. Right, That's verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. But God who's rich in mercy, because of his great love, he's made them alive. And his purpose, according to Paul, was to display his grace. That's what he said there in verse 7. And so you've been saved, you've been taken from death to life to be a display of God's grace. And so now, here in verse 8, Paul's going to reiterate, he doesn't want the Ephesians, he doesn't want us to misunderstand that it's by grace that you've been saved. So, so even up there in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, it's like he, he just, he just uh, burst out, by grace you've been saved, in the middle of his sentence, because he can't contain himself. And so he's finished his thought in verse 8. He's going back to what it means to be saved by grace. And so Paul says, by grace you have been saved. This word, this this idea of grace, it's key to Paul's theology. Grace is the foundation of Paul's theology. And grace means that the completely undeserved loving commitment of God that has been made to us is by grace. Grace means that for some reason unknown to us, God gives himself to us, attaches himself to us, and acts to rescue us. And so grace means that though wrath should have come, though we were deserving of sure death, saving grace comes instead. That's what it means. What we deserve, we don't get. And this action is rooted, according to Paul, in God's very nature. Some of you, maybe you've heard the acrostic for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you've heard that. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's, that's a good acrostic. Boys and girls, if you want to know what grace is, it's God's riches that are given to you at Christ's expense. That's a, good, that's a good mnemonic device to help us remember grace. I've also heard it defined simply as undeserved merit. And that's another simple undeserved favor, undeserved merit. One further clarification to that would be it's, it's actually merit or favor that is contrary or opposite of what we deserve. It's not as though we just get what we don't deserve. We actually get the opposite of what we deserve. It's not like we're in this neutral state and God says, okay, I think I'll save you. No, we are in a state of fallen rebellion. We are actually God's enemies and he says, I'm going to save you. And Paul says it's by grace that God looks at you in your state of rebellion and says, even so, I'm going to love you and save you. That's grace. And so God's grace, this idea of God's grace is the only right fitting and proper place for me as a Christian to locate my salvation. Anything else misses the mark. By grace, you've been saved. It's undeserved. It's, it's riches that have been poured out upon you in Christ by God. That's grace. But notice, Paul says, by grace you've been saved, but he doesn't stop there in verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith, Paul adds. By grace through faith. And so although the sole basis for salvation is Paul is God's grace, Paul continues by clarifying that, that this salvation that has come by God's grace is received by people through faith. God is gracious, yes, 
And God's gracious plan has provided a Savior that has made salvation available to all people. But that salvation, that gift, must be received or appropriated by faith. You must put your faith in Jesus. Salvation is by grace through faith. And so Paul, as he's working this out, this faith, this exercise of faith, actually occurs in time and space. There's a point in the life of every Christian where he or she believes in Jesus or puts his or her faith in Jesus. This is what Paul talked about up in in verse 13 of chapter 1. He's talking about his Gentile brothers and sisters. He says, In Christ also you, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say when when you believed you were included in Christ. He's already said when you're included in Christ. He says you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. But as as far as outworking of God's salvation in your life, the actual outworking of God's eternal plan in your life, you actually at one point in time heard the gospel and believed the gospel. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, at one point in your life, you heard the message of salvation and you put your faith in Jesus. That's what Paul means. Salvation is by grace. God has provided the means, but, but it has to be appropriate. We have to act. We have to put our faith in Jesus. One is not automatically saved because Jesus died. Right? That, that's not the message, right? That, that's, that's inclusivism. That's universalism. We say, oh, Jesus died for all people, therefore everybody's saved. No, that's not the gospel. Faith is the means by which we appropriate this gracious salvation that has been made available to us. You put your faith in Jesus, and that's the only way that anyone is saved. And so even up in chapter 1, election doesn't save you. Predestination doesn't save you. Paul understands salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where your election negates the necessity of faith. You are saved by grace through faith, which, which leads us to ask, what does Paul mean by faith? What does he mean? Okay, I'm saved by grace through faith. Well, what is faith? It's not wishful thinking. and that, That's our common, our common definition of faith. Well, I just, I just hope, if I just have enough faith that, that it's not going to rain on my birthday party, maybe it'll happen. Right? That's not faith here. It's not this wishful thinking. It's not even merely mental assent, or, or if I just believe certain things, that's all I have to do. That's not faith here. The actual word that's used here, the Greek word that is translated faith, means trust or confidence, a, a, an idea of reliance, rock-solid reliance or confidence. As one commentator explains, as one who trusts in a chair for support because it's trustworthy, so one puts their faith or trust in God's gracious provision of salvation because God, has a comp- because God is reliable or trustworthy. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, it's because God is reliable. It's not wishful thinking. I hope it happens. No, I know it's going to happen because God has promised it. And the source of my salvation is secure because the one who's purchased and promised it is reliable. Just like I can sit in a chair and trust it's going to hold me, I can trust in God's promises because they're not going to fail me. One does not work to support oneself in the chair, nor does one work to obtain salvation. Rather, one relies on what God has accomplished in His Son at the cross 2,000 years ago. And so faith is confidence, not in circumstances or one's own ability, but a confidence to trust in God who has made provisions 
for your salvation. Faith is the act of relying on God because he is reliable. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian, if, you, if you're not actively relying or trusting confidently on the Lord, just hear me say this morning that apart from faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for the hope of a, a future an eternal life with God, apart from faith in Jesus, this kind of faith that Paul's talking about, apart from believing that God has made Jesus the one mediator between God, holy God, and sinful man, apart from putting your faith in Jesus, you cannot be saved. So boys and girls, I want you to put your faith in Jesus. I want you to trust in Jesus. Apart from that, you cannot be saved. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't have good enough parents or grandparents. You can't do enough good deeds, enough humanitarian work. You cannot be saved apart from faith, firm reliance and trust in Jesus Christ. There's one name under heaven by which you must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. And so I would call on you this morning to put your faith in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that you can be saved. Universal provision has been made in the death of Christ. The call is for you to appropriate that universal provision by faith in Jesus. Well, Paul continues here in verses 8 and 9. He's going to develop this idea further, so you're saved by grace through faith, but he's going he's to offer a contrast or an opposing view of salvation here in our second sentence. So there are a second outline point. Salvation is not by human works. So notice Paul in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so Paul here, there's, there's two negative statements. And so he says, hey, you're saved by grace through faith, not this way and not this way. There's two negative statements in order to ensure that the equation is not distorted. So, so don't miss what Paul's saying. In Paul's mind, it isn't enough that he positively states that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Paul says, well, let me negatively clarify two times what salvation is not. And so look there, the first negative at the end of verse 8. This is not your own doing. Or another translation, maybe, maybe yours says, this is not of yourselves. What Paul means is that since salvation is by grace through faith, it cannot, it must not be considered something that's achieved by my human ability or my, my wisdom. I can't get there on my own. It's not my own doing. Paul is saying very directly, this salvation is not initiated or orchestrated by you. You're not part of the salvation planning committee. You never were. You may be part of another committee, but you weren't part of that committee. The salvation planning committee was God and God alone. You are a passive recipient of this great plan of salvation that has been accomplished and planned by God alone. So Paul says this is not your own doing. It's a gift. It's the gift of God. And this here, the word this, so, so where Paul says this is not your own doing, so, so people ask, well, what is the this referring to? Some, some will, will point back to the most immediate word being faith. So they say this faith is not of your own. It's a gift of God. So some people say, well, well faith is the gift he's referring to. There are issues with that. It seems like a more likely reference of the this here in verse 9 is that this is more broadly just salvation, this whole process. This is not of your own doing. It's as if Paul is saying this whole thing from start to finish is, is, is something that you cannot take any credit for. It's, it's not your own doing. 
It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's like maybe, maybe you know this, this person. It's like the sports fan who takes credit for their team winning or for being so good. We are so awesome. I can't believe we won the Super Bowl again. We are so good. And, and I want to say, well, what did you do? What part did you play? What role did you play on that victory, on that season, on that dynasty? Right? Paul is saying a similar thing when it comes to salvation. You did not contribute anything. Nothing of worth to this. And by putting it in these terms, Paul is emphasizing that we do not bring anything of our own. Of value, but, but whatever we have need of, we must beg it at God's hand. That's Christianity. We bring the lack. We bring the want. We bring the need. He brings everything else. Salvation is of the Lord. This, this is one of the reasons I love old hymns from the 18th century. Listen to the, 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 thir- the third verse of a, of a hymn. Maybe you've heard of it called Rock of Ages. Not the musical, right? Not, not the Broadway musical, but, but this hymn from the 18th century. The third verse, listen to these words. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul or dirty, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you hear the desperation in that third verse? I bring nothing. I bring nothing. I simply cling to what has been provided to me in the gospel. Or another, another 18th century hymn called Come Ye Sinners. This verse let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requireth is to feel your need of him. Do you know that song? Do you know that verse? What a powerful verse. Right? Why, why would you wait coming to Jesus? Don't, don't let conscience make you linger. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be rejected. I'm not good enough. Nor a fitness finally. I gotta clean myself up before I go before God. I gotta fix myself. I gotta deal with this problem. Or I gotta eliminate this past. I gotta erase what happened in my past. Let none of those things prevent you. The only thing that's required of you coming is knowing I need you. Right? That is utter dependence. This is what it looks like to acknowledge a total dependence on God in our salvation. We are helpless when it comes to saving ourselves. It is not our own doing. Paul says, it is a gift of God. The second negative there in verse 9 further again, further clarifies what we do not contribute. Not only is it not of your own doing, Paul says, secondly, neither is it a reward of what you have earned. Verse 9, it's not a result of works. If salvation were a result of works, all that Paul has just said regarding grace would be null and void. If I'm saved because I earned it or deserved it, then I'm saved on my own accord, by my own doing. I mean, you can write down Romans eleven six. Paul's going to make this exact point in Romans 11. Listen to what he says in Romans eleven six. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If, I, if I'm saved by works, I'm not saved by grace. It's either or. It's not both and. And Paul says it's by grace which necessarily excludes works. Where divine grace operates, human merit is excluded. 
I mean, this is what grace means. It's freely given, freely bestowed on those who believe. It's not given as compensation for anything that you or I have done. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, as Paul said in Titus 2. And so when God saves an individual, he does so in such a way and to such an extent that human boasting is completely removed from the equation. My understanding of salvation must not allow even a hint of human contribution. Right? We have to get this through our heads. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot contribute anything to salvation. This is the very design of the gospel. The gospel makes God look great, not kind of great, not like the divine helper, just, just get up to my level and then I'll help the rest of the way. That's not the gospel. I mean, there's this great sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. I think I actually put this quote on the next slide, but Jonathan Edwards in a sermon called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. I mean, what a great title. God Glorified in Man's Dependence. The whole sermon, he's laying out how God looks good, how he's designed life and salvation to make God look glorious. And here's a quote that he says, which is a great quote. He says, whatever scheme is inconsistent with our entire dependence on God for all and of having our all of him, through him, and in him, and in him, it is repugnant to the design and the tenor of the gospel, and it robs it of that which God accounts its luster and glory. I wish I, I, wish I came up with that quote. <laughs> what a good quote. Whatever scheme is inconsistent with our entire dependence on God is repugnant to the design and tenor of the gospel. And it robs the gospel of that which God accounts its luster and its glory, its shine, is that we are nothing but God is everything. Salvation is of God, and we're dependent upon him for all. It's not the result of works. And all of this means, according to Paul, that, that you can't boast about it. Humility is the mark of true Christianity. All grounds for boasting are eliminated, save boasting in the cross of Christ, as Paul would say in Philippians. So Paul makes clear, verses 8 and 9, that it is God's initiative from start to finish, but... He also makes a point in verse 10. So let's look at our last point there in verse 10. That salvation leads to good works. Or salvation results in human works. Okay? Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, that's a purpose clause, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now notice verse 10. How does it begin? It begins with the word for. For, which means that he's continuing his thought. He's connecting verse 10 with what he's just said. Namely, that salvation excludes all grounds of boasting. Salvation excludes all human works. And in verse 10, he furthers this point by saying, even the works that follow or accompany Christian salvation, even these works are a result of God's doing. Even the works a result of God's initiative. I mean, it should be clearly stated that the Christian life is a life of works. It is a life of works. We're not saved by works, but, but we are saved for works. The Christian life is a life of doing. It's not just hearing and talking and saying and posting. It's actually doing. It's a life of doing. 
Salvation is a call to a life of good works. Don't leave that out of your gospel message, out of your Christianity. But even in those good works, Paul wants his audience to know, Paul wants us to know that even in those good works, God is the one who initiated them. God is the one who ordained them. God is the one who prepared them beforehand. And he did this, notice the final phrase of verse 10, he did this so that we should walk in them. So that even the works that we work are a result of God's work. So even the works that we work, and we do work works, but even the works that we work are a result of God's work. Right? Is that, is that confusing? Right? Look at verse 10 and just read it and read it and read it. Because Paul says that we are God's workmanship. We are his handiwork, the NIV uses the word. And so when Paul says that we are his workmanship or his handiwork, right, I think Paul wants us to go back to Genesis chapter 1. So that just as the creation of heaven and earth, you know what happens in Genesis 1, the, the creation account? I think Paul wants us to know just as the creation of heaven and earth was accomplished by God apart from human intervention, Paul asserts that all who are in Christ are God's creation apart from human initiative or human activity. Paul's point is that in eternity past, God not only chose the people to be in a relationship with himself, but he also marked out a path for them to walk. And so Paul's saying Christians are God's workmanship, God's new creation. He'll use that language elsewhere. And as such, as new creatures, Christians are called to walk in order to carry out good works. I mean, this is the point. God ordained them, and having ordained them, they are going to come to pass. He did it so that they would come to pass. He doesn't ordain these works and say, well, I hope it, I hope it works. No, we are created to walk them out. And the Christian life, the true Christian life, consists of walking them out, carrying out the good works. This is the normal Christian life. This is what it means to be a piece of workmanship, a masterpiece of God himself. And so a Christian who's been saved, who's experienced God's salvation by grace through faith is a Christian whose life is marked or characterized by good works. We can't be afraid of saying that. Now, we can't say that in the equation at the beginning. We're not saved by works, but we can't leave works totally out of the equation because we're saved for good works, Paul says. And so while Paul has made perfectly clear that human works play no role in the earning or the accomplishment of salvation, he also goes on to say here in verse 10 that human works are a result or a byproduct or a fruit of being saved, of being a new creation. Paul argues that those who have been saved live lives characterized by good works, which Paul understands as works performed not to secure salvation, but as a fruit of salvation. Do you see? Good works are fruit or evidence, byproducts of being saved. So that if I'm truly saved, my works are going to be there. I mean, this is the book of James. Faith without our works is what? It's dead. It's non-existent. It's not there because faith that saves is alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Right? It's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves, it's never alone, void of works. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. And so a genuine experience of salvation it makes a mark. It makes a difference. Something changes when I'm saved. This is what he's laid out in chapter 2. You once were dead, but now you're alive. 
Notice how verse 10 is a reversal of verses 1 through 3. He closes this section in verse 10. So all the way up in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 2, he says, this is what you once were. Before Christ, you walked. How did you walk? You walked in sins and trespasses. You were dead. You're following the course of the world, the prince of power of the air. You're carrying out desires of the body and the mind. So you were a dead man walking, he says, or a dead woman walking. He says, that's what your life looked like before Christ, apart from Christ. That's what your walk looks like. But, verses 4 through 10, because of God who's rich in mercy, who loves us with great love, even when we were dead, we were made alive in Christ. We have new life, we're new creations. It's all God's doing. And now, Paul says, verse 10, our walk is different. We once walked one way, but now God has intervened, and now we walk different. That's 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 how he... sections off this whole part. We walk differently. We don't walk the way we used to. Now we walk in good works. Something has changed. And if I'm honest, it scares me because we find ourselves in a church culture where change is optional. And that scares me because in Ephesians chapter 2, change is not optional. Change is necessary and evidence of salvation. A culture where what I once was and what I am now isn't much different. And that scares me that we're okay with that. Paul's not okay with that. Something changes. Now hear me say it. It doesn't scare me that the degree of change isn't as drastic as it could be. That doesn't scare me. Like I said last week, the Christian's testimony is, I'm not yet what I should be or what I want to be. I'm not there yet but I'm still not what I used to be, right? So, so, so if you're looking at your life and saying, my change isn't as drastic as it should be, I'm okay with that. That's a good Christian impulse. I have farther to go. That's right. We all do. We're all in process. That doesn't scare me to have a church culture or a church filled with people who recognize, I'm not there yet. I still have a ways to go. What scares me is the thought of a church filled with people who couldn't care less that they're not where they should be. That's what scares me. Have a church filled with people who could not care less that they aren't where they should be. That's what scares me. Because Paul, what he says here is that your life is, that if your life isn't characterized by good works, or negatively to state this, if your life is still characterized by following the course of this world, by following the prince of the power of the air, by carrying out sinful desires of your mind and body. And if that's still you, what Paul says here isn't, don't worry, you're going to be fine. You walk the aisle, you prayed the prayer, you're baptized in the church, you're fine. That's not what Paul says. What Paul implies here is that if that's you, you probably haven't been saved. I mean, that's the logic here. I once was, God intervened, I'm not the same, I'm different. And so people who are God's workmanship, who've been made new creations, those who've been saved and given new life, have been saved, have been made alive for the purpose of walking in good works. This is the purpose of salvation. I mean, look back up in in verse 4 of chapter 1, where he says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world for what? To be holy and blameless. That's why we're saved, so we would be like Jesus. We'd be holy. 
And so Paul's idea of good works here, he, he doesn't define it immediately here. In fact, he's going to spend chapters 4 through 6 summarizing, defining what good works look like. But, but most simply here, he's saying that good works are simply the, the, the godly life, a life that, that's lived, that's marked by, by basic Christian ethics, a life committed to the Lord. That, that's what he's saying here, that we are, we are saved for good works. We're saved to live a Christian life. A life that's committed to the Lord is going to be characterized by things that honor the Lord. Not always only, I'm not saying that, but generally, broadly, a life that's committed to the Lord is characterized by things that honor the Lord. Just like a life apart from Christ, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, is characterized by the things that are in line with all the things opposed to God. I mean, that, 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 that's the category. You're either in Christ and walking in good works, or you're apart from Christ, walking in the ways of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And so there are important ethical consequences of our being God's new creation. And like I said, these are going to be laid out in the chapters to come. In fact, what Paul's doing here, I think, is laying the groundwork for all the ethical admonitions of Ephesians 4 through 6. He's going to give lots of ethical commands, right? And, And those are going to be grounded on this, He's going to say, this is what it looks like to live as a Christian, to be unified, to live as a Christian husband or wife or child or employee. And so the foundation is laid here for, for in chapters 4 through 6, and we will get there, I promise. And we're going to get to 4 through 6. But here today, this is how I want to close. I just want to close with a final point of application for the Christian. And, and the final application is simply this question, does your faith work? Does your faith work? Has your experience of salvation transformed your life? How does your life pursue godliness? I mean, how are you pursuing holiness day in and day out? Do you pursue holiness day in and day out? You've been saved for that purpose. And so I just want to ask, how are you doing it? What good works characterize your life? Another way to ask that how is your marriage? How are your relationships? How are your conversations at work or in your home? How are your prayers? How are your thoughts, your desires? How are all these things influenced and shaped by the gracious salvation that you've received from God's grace? Right? If I have received God's grace and been saved and raised from death to life, my whole paradigm shifts and my priorities are different and the way I go about parenting and marriage and life and work and everything is different. And so I just want to ask, what's different? What's different? We are saved by grace through faith for works. I'll close with this, this quote before I, before I pray. One commentator, he he closes his comments on this section with these words, and I think they're fitting. He says, There was a time when we walked in disobedience and sin, when we followed the ways of this world, were in terrible bondage to the devil, and were destined for wrath. But now, because of God's mighty salvation, in which a glorious change has been effected, we are expected to demonstrate a changed lifestyle. Our attitudes and behaviors are to show 
all the hallmarks of the new creation. If you're a Christian, you are new, and you're different. Let's pray as we close.